what makes you as a pastor feel like you've failed? And if you have failed at any point along the way, what have you done about it? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're the podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. We're hoping to be an encouragement and a resource for pastors and lay leaders in local congregations who will uh, take the themes or subjects that we uh, look at, whether prompted by a book or, or a practitioner, and think about them theologically, that is, reflect on them through the lens of the story of Jesus. Today on the podcast, I am glad to have Taylor Mertens. Uh, Taylor is a young minister in the United Methodist Church, and I met him through his compadres at Crackers and Grape Juice. We met in person in December, and uh, Taylor had made a comment uh, in a podcast conversation uh, that he and I had had for uh, Strangely Warmed, the lectionary-based podcast that he produces for Crackers and Grape Juice, where he said something about he's had plenty of lessons in failure, and it taught caught me off guard uh, in doing this ministry thing, pastoring for almost 30 years on staff, uh, year, several years so beyond that. And I thought, well, let's have a conversation. What's a young guy, maybe around 30, going to say about uh, his sense of failing as a pastor? So I hope you'll stay tuned, share the podcast, um, and as always, uh, Leave a rating or review in iTunes. It helps us get found as we move along the course of uh, providing this resource. Uh, I have some information for you on the backside. So here's my conversation with Taylor Mertens. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, podcaster, the pastor, theologian. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have Taylor Mertens. Um, I met Taylor uh, uh, really uh, through uh, uh, some other friends, and then he became uh, instrumental I don't know if everybody on the Crackers gang would want Taylor referred to as instrumental, but he's integral to uh, the production of uh, the uh, series of podcasts over on Crackers and Grape Juice, uh, Hermeneutics and Strangely Warmed. Strangely Warmed, which is the podcast that Taylor hosts. I had the pleasure of being on that podcast a couple weeks ago as we talked about Ash Wednesday. Taylor, I'm glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Todd. Yeah, so um, I most who listen to the podcast know that I'm a bit of a have been a bit of a fanboy of crackers and grape juice, uh, and and yet they might not have a whole lot of uh, frame of reference for who Taylor is, and if they don't have really a cause and uh, haven't been shamed enough into uh, subscribing to Strangely Warmed, uh, they might not have any clue um, who you are and what you do. So. Tell us a little bit about Taylor. Sure. So I, I will say first that uh, he talked about the first time we met. The first time I ever heard your voice that I can remember was editing uh, a Crackers and Grape Juice podcast episode on Jason's book. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cancer is funny. And I think Tier sort of host, hosted the conversation. If I remember correctly, there were six other people talking all yeah. at the same time. It was, without a doubt, the worst episode I've ever had to edit. 
It was terrible. And there was this guy named Todd Littleton from the Pathological Podcast who kept talking the whole time. I'm like, gosh, who is this guy? Because I keep, I want to hear what he says, but four other people kept interrupting. It was awful. And I somehow made some sort of episode out of it, but it's, it's not very good. Uh, so that's the first time I heard your voice. So I am Taylor Mertens. I serve as an elder in the United Methodist Church. I serve a church called Cokesbury UMC in Woodbridge, Virginia. It's just outside of uh, Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. Uh, I've been in full-time ministry for five years. I'm a husband and a father of a toddler, and uh, I got involved with this thing called Crackers and Grape Juice uh, about a year and a half ago. This is a podcast where we try to put out interviews with theologians and writers and other people once a week to have uh, further theological reflection. We say without using stained glass language, and I'm one of the only ones that try to keep us accountable to that. Um, we also have a podcast podcast called Hermeneutics, which is hosted by Joanna Hartelius, in which we unpack a theological word every week. We're going through the alphabet. We just finished J. And then I host Strangely Warmed, which is a, an expression from John Wesley, who's part of the founder of the Methodist Church, that he once felt his heart strangely warmed when scripture was being read to him. Uh, and so we, me, we, we take... Um, we take the lectionary texts every week, uh, unpack them for about 30 minutes, and then produce the episodes and get them out on Monday ahead of the Sunday. And so it's sort of designed for pastors and lay leaders to help uh, help them think about the text before they're going to hear them on Sunday. Uh, and I just do a lot of the work to do that, the editing, the recording, and all the stuff in between. Good. Now, this is, uh, if I'm right, uh, you just uh, made the move uh, to Cokesbury. Is that correct? Yeah, so I served a church for four years in the Shenandoah Valley on the other side of Virginia uh, called St. John's United Methodist Church in a town called Stanton. Uh, and then in unlike your world, uh, we, we're not hired by our individual churches. We are appointed by the bishop to go certain places. So after serving for four years, the bishop discerned that my gifts and graces fit most with a church uh, here in Woodbridge. So I was reappointed yeah, and and uh, for those who are unfamiliar with that uh, connectional system, it, it is it is uh, varying lengths. We have a uh, uh, UMC church here in Tuttle, and in my twenty four years nearly here, um, I lost count of how many um, Methodist ministers we've had. I, I probably I would say at least six and may have been many more than that. I knew uh, nearly all of them, and uh, some were here for a very, very short time, and, and some for maybe uh, four or five years, which I think has been the longest tenure um, mm-hmm. since, since I've been I've been here. So I, I was, yeah, I always joke that you know you're in a Methodist church if there's a hallway or a room designated to having like eight eight and a half by 11 pictures of all their pastors hung on a wall and the dates underneath and all the dates are between three and five years. So, yeah. And then there are some instances though, uh, where there's longer tenures, uh, you know, the fellow that's at, uh, St. Luke's in Oklahoma city, Bob Long has been, uh, there, uh, a long time. Bob has been at first UMC, uh, and at St. Luke's, uh, downtown for a long, long time. And, uh, and so just, it varies. It, it, it varies. 
Um, one of the things that caught my attention, I want to have a conversation with um, uh, Taylor about was it, it's not often that uh, a young guy who says I've been doing this for five years um, is also at the same time willing to say that, uh, boy, I've got some stories of pastoral failure. And I thought, golly, I don't know any of the guys I ran with when I was uh, that young who um, voiced any sort of um, hint that they were willing to talk about their failures uh, because uh, what's wired into ministry, I think, regardless of denomination, is is you're geared to talk about your successes. You're, you're, you, you almost can't have an honest conversation about any topic or subject uh, because you've got to have your best uh, game face on when you're with the clergy. And um, you can't let on that, that maybe things are, are bad because your performance is so tied to your identity mm-hmm. that um, we, we, we feign going there. We just don't want to do it. Um, so what came to my mind, Taylor, when you had, had mentioned this was um, about seven years ago, this coming April, uh, I didn't get to make the conference. I was interested in it, but J.R. Briggs uh, in uh, Lansdale, PA, uh, put together what was called the Epic Fail uh, conference. And by design, it was to do this very thing, was to open up a space um, where pastors, ministers could gather, ironically held in a former church. The church had uh, disbanded, and it was just a vacant structure that became a pub. And so some, you know, to use that metaphor, uh, by extension, uh, they met. I, uh, Bob Smetana, who uh, wrote for RNS, he's a religion news reporter. Uh, he's a, f- a friend of a friend of mine who now does a podcast uh, uh, with Marty uh, called The Fourth Estate. But he, um, he covered it, and I, pull, I pulled it up, uh, and it was virtually a, uh, uh, creating a space for like what we're even talking about today, uh, the outworking of that conference. I think they may have done two or three was a book by J.R. Briggs on this very subject, full of statistics and anecdotal stories and then Mm -hmm. suggestions. So how is it that um, five years in, um, you feel quite uh, comfortable um, suggesting that maybe there's been a point at which you have failed? Yeah, so it's not something that happened five years in. I felt like we should talk about how we failed from the very beginning. And part so like the theological justification for that for me or the scriptural justification for that is I you know, I often ask people, with whom do you most identify with in scripture? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always trying to think about having a scripturally shaped imagination. So when I have like a counseling session in my office, I'll try to say, hey, I'm, I'm hearing you. Does this remind you of a story from the Bible? And more often than not, because we don't read our Bibles anymore, no one knows what to say. But I can say, you know, this actually really sounds to me like Jonah, you know, Jonah not wanting to go to Nineveh or whatever the you know, situation holds. Sure. But this idea, we, we, it happens in all writing and reading. We identify with certain characters. And I am very much Petrine. I am the walking, talking Peter. I jump in to the water before I know what I'm doing. I think I know what Jesus needs to do more than Jesus does, but I'm also, uh, uh, I fail a lot. I'm definitely the person who can say, I don't know who Jesus is at all. You know, 
deny him, deny him. And I think that's a really good sort of analogy and a metaphor for clergy and for all Christians to think about how we, we like the scene on the sandy shore when Peter says, I love you to Jesus three times, but we forget that he said, you know, we forget that he denied him three times before that. So, I mean, I've always just tried to think about the truth of that. And then also like, there is this really weird myth that's perpetuated in the church that the people who stand behind the pulpit are on this pedestal of perfection. And when they do mess up, because they do, they fall harder than anybody else. And um, the the most the best responses I've ever got to ser- to sermons that I preach have been the ones where I've said I really struggle with this too, because that's how most people feel in the pews. Right. This aspect of certainty doesn't exist as much. So I've tried to be real as much as possible uh, from the very beginning, and um, I think it's I think it's helped at times. I think it's been a hindrance though, because. Uh, you don't want the person who's leading your church to say, I don't know what I'm doing every single week. <laughs> right. Uh, though it feels like that sometimes. Well, you know, um, let, let's, let's do a, a little um, uh, kind of distinguishing here. Um, most of the time when, especially I would say, well, that's probably, it's probably not true. It's probably longer than that, but I'd say at least, um, what's been more prominent when we talk about ministry failure, uh, and the sort that makes local news in your town or mine, um, has, has revolved around, you know, some fairly significant, highly visible moral failure. So when, when we probably need to distinguish that, that uh, this is not an episode wherein Taylor breaks uh, groundbreaking news about, um, you know, um, getting getting picked up um, in uh, um, or for uh, soliciting a prostitute uh, in an adjacent town. Uh, and I, I raise that, Taylor, because um, in one of J.R. Briggs's illustration was when he was talking about failure that was one of the ones that, you know, he had heard a story of. And, um, and then locally here, years ago, that, that, that happened to a minister um, in, a, in another congregation. Uh, and so, uh, and, and that way was predates my time. So that's like something I've been told mm-hmm. that happened years and years ago. Um, so when we talk about failure, those tend to be the obvious ones, you know, those tend to be the, the, the big ones. And, and, mm-hmm. and I think you're actually talking about something a little more um, common. Because I, I don't think that um, if you take a thousand clergy that 900 of them are going to have solicited prostitutes. No, but to be clear, the rate of adultery is higher in clergy than almost any other profession in our country. And that, and that's uh, of course pretty uh, disturbing. And of course, we could probably have an entire episode sure. as to what sure. probably prompts some of, mm-hmm. of that, you know, going on. But but I think that one of the things, and and let's, you know, I, I appreciate you know kind of putting this in kind of a theological register where I look at say a Peter. Um, you know, Briggs used Moses, we could use David, we could, you, you, you mentioned Jonah, 
you know, how do we see ourselves in a given event and, and what sort of failure is there? But, but I think that what happens is, is the young guys get, get to rolling out in ministry and um, there, there, is a, there is a set of expectations that are um, unclear and unwritten. And, and so we tend to internalize those as we try to guess what they are, such that now that I'm involved with a group of people that I didn't know before, and I'm, I'm, I've been given this responsibility of leading a congregation, I prepare uh, one, two, three sermons a week, or Bible studies, or I have, I have administrative responsibilities, and, and I've got this vision of kind of where I think God wants me to go with leadership, but I also am battling these un, unwritten and unspoken expectations. And I think that's, that's a really uh, significant setup for ongoing feelings that I missed the boat or I failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, when I was appointed to my first church in, the, in, in my flavor of church, we have a, a committee at every church called the Staff Parish Relations Committee. And they gather together regularly to make sure that the staff, including the, the clergy person, is doing his or her job. And you're always introduced to the Staff Parish Relations Committee before it's formally announced that this church is receiving you know, this person. And so I sat down with the first church. It was on Good Friday, ominously enough. And um, you know they sort of introduced themselves. I introduced myself, and we talked back and forth. And then I got a chance to ask a question. And I, I said something like, or asked something like, of all the things you can think of in terms of the responsibility of the clergy person of this church, what do you think this church needs the most? Hmm. You know, wow. is it pastoral visitation? Is it good worship? You know, like, what do you think? You're, you're a representative of the church. What do you think is the thing you all need the most? And the overwhelming response was, we want people in our community to know that you're the pastor of this church. Uh-huh. So for them, it was, you know, they've been there for a while. Sure, People would drive by the church, but they didn't really know a lot about it. Or that who the who the pastor was, and part of that was there was this sort of cult. There were a couple of Baptist pastors in town who had been there for thirty years, and everybody knew who they were because they had been there for thirty years. Right. But these these church folk wanted people to know who who I was, so I let that sort of organize my ministry in terms of priority. One of the things I do, uh, and I still do, is every Good Friday I take a cross that's not quite large enough to be crucified on, but pretty big, and I throw it over my shoulder and I walk around town hmm. all of Good Friday. And I don't have a sign that says, you know, Taylor, pastor of X church. But um, after doing it the first year, people started to know that it was going to happen and expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it became attributed to me because church people were proud and be able to say like, oh, that's our, that's our pastor and all that sort of stuff. But I, I was thinking about, okay, well, how can we get a better reputation, not just for me in the community, but for the church? And so I, one day I sat down. I wrote a handwritten letter to the 150 closest houses to the church. You know, it took forever. <laughs> and all I basically said was, you know, Hey, I'm Taylor. I'm the new pastor at St. John's. I just wanted to say that I'm really excited to be part of this community. This is by no means a call to evangelism or church membership. I just want to know what we can do to better serve your needs. I don't know what that looks like, but I want to make sure that I'm asking the right question. You know, something like that. Sure. I sent all the letters out. I actually got a lot of responses um, one of them was from a, a group of moms who all had middle school students and they all lived in the neighborhood across the street from us. And they said, it's, it's like serendipitous that you write this letter. We don't feel comfortable 
with our sons all returning home after school every day because we're all still at work. We would love for the church to host them for an hour or two in the afternoons just as a safe place. You don't have to have any activities for them, but just someplace where we know they are until we're home from work. And I thought, boom, ministry, perfect. This is going to be awesome. It's so easy to do. We have this huge fellowship hall with, with toys and games in it, like, and we have a TV. It's going to be so damn easy. And so I brought it to our church council, which is for us like a sort of the governing body of the, of the church. And I said, check it out, friends. I wrote these letters. I got these responses from people. You told me you want to be better known in the community. There, there are moms with children. Remember, these are the kind of people we want to come to our church. They just need a safe place for the kids one to two hours every afternoon. And we've got the fellowship hall. It's right across the street. They can walk over here from school. Like, it's going to be perfect. Who is with me? Crickets. <laughs> And we put it to a vote and everyone said no. Wow. And I was so livid. I was so mad um, because I thought like, I just did everything you asked me to do. I, I am offering this to you on a silver. This is low hanging fruit. Right. And it was all no. So here's where I failed. Here's where I failed. I did it all by myself. Mm-hmm. I wrote all the letters by myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk to anybody from the church about mm-hmm. doing it. I, ta- I met with all the moms and had these meetings with them and talked about the specifics of it. And I, I did all the work by myself and presented it to the church as if it was theirs. Right. So the failure for me that was really important to happen and to learn like in my first six months of ministry is that it can't be all on the pastor's shoulders right? or, or it will always fail. Right. No, it's it's a great insight, and and I've I've got a um, I've got a friend who did church consulting mostly for uh, Methodist churches. He he was by uh, virtue of his uh, rearing and his formation uh, a Methodist uh, boy. He, he did end up going to um, college. I went to a Baptist university, but but uh, Mark's Mark's a really good guy, and um, uh, I consulted with him in sort of pastor role a few times. And, um, he made that, he made that exact, exact same, um, uh, observation when he would try to work with these church committees. Um, and he put it in, he put it in this, uh, terminology. Um, and, and, and it's easier to probably express if we say, describe this in terms of say youth ministry, that was really the thing he was uh, consulting about, but he said, uh, the church either has a youth minister or it has a youth ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what you're describing that, um, over time, I think that one of those unspoken expectations is, is we are hiring you to do everything we think ought to be done. Good luck getting our participation. So while I agree with you that um, the, the lesson of that fail, if you will, is that I can't be the one to do it all, you also have to circumvent uh, a developing kind of ethos that tends to run across denominations in the mm-hmm. Christian church that we hire these people to do these things so that we don't have to do these things. We want to show up and so it, it's really a consumptive model rather than a participant participation. And, and in that way, I mean, how do you turn that, quote, failure around? What have you found um, helpful to uh, um, 
Well, your next thing you did, did you do it all, all yourself or what, what was, you have an illustration of kind of what you did next? Yeah. So the commodification of the church is real. Let's be very clear. Um, whether it's staff salaried positions or anything else under the sun, it, we are so steeped in the world of capitalism that, uh, it is in the church in everything that we do. Um, and I feel like I'm always trying to combat that as if church members are paying for a good that they receive that, that sort of narrative. Um, right. So, uh, from that point forward, uh, I have tried my best to always include a handful of lay leaders in ministry ideas. You know, I'm kind of an ideas person anyway. I I get these ideas, but just because I have an idea doesn't mean I know how to make them happen. Sure. And so if I have an idea, I I will try to share with a couple people saying, I I think this is a vision for our church. How can we all work together to make it happen? Mm -hmm. So after that failure, I got together with some of those um, church council folk who said, no, 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 no. And I said, okay, what what can we do to get involved with this community? Because we've got all these families right across the street. They've asked us to do something. We've said no. I mean, that's going to sting. So I screwed that up big time. But I I think there's a way to get more involved with our community. I think we can have a community cookout once a year in the summer, free food for everybody. We get moon bounces, water balloons, all that kind of, we have a huge property. So we've got the space to do it. And I said, you know, but I think the only way it works is if we do it for free. And um, how, how can we make that happen? And so, you know, the, because I involved them, a lot of them were really into that. Oh, I've got my grill. I can bring that. I know where we can get discounts on this food that we can get. I know a buddy of mine who runs this moon bounce company. We can get a you know, percentage off on renting it. And that way they could then go talk to the rest of the congregation with excitement, say, hey, we're going to do this free community cookout. And, uh, and so we did it that summer and they've, they've continued to do it even after I left. Good. And that to me is one of the signs of something like moving from failure to success is like that it's not contingent upon the pastor remaining there for it to continue to happen. Yeah. So um, when you made your, you know, recognition, um, when you were self-aware that there will be our, our occasions uh, for failure, how, how does, how do you process that personally? I mean, so in the illustration you just gave, you brush yourself off, you recognized, okay, I really needed to involve a few more people. This next project could, could probably be much more successful and obviously was. But, it, but there, there's also the layer when those sorts of things happen that, that re- really affect us um, on the level of, of like, uh, what am I doing? Uh, do I know what I'm doing? Um, so there's, you've got to go through a period of processing that. How, how do, what are some things you do to process those moments where you have this realization? Wow. I, uh, I blew that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Preaching every Sunday has its, uh, advantages <laughs> and disadvantages. Uh, the, the one disadvantage is it's kind of hard sometimes to come up with something to say every week. Uh, but thanks be to God, I've had something to say every week for five years. But the real advantage of it is no matter how much you screw up, you got to get back up in the pulpit the next week. Yeah. And I, I mean, I use that sort of as this like metaphor, like, man, I, I really, I really, Todd, I've messed up a lot in five yeah. years, but I have to get back up in the pulpit on Sunday. Yeah. I have to have something to say. Right. And so it's, it's, you know, you can feel sorry for yourself, but if you feel sorry for yourself all week, you're not going to have anything to say on Sunday. No. Um, 
And there have been plenty of times where Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I don't want to work on a sermon because I'm so frustrated with myself or with the church. And you just, you just got to do it. Um, you just got to put your butt in the chair and work. And that like ultimately that and the power of prayer and God's spirit has what like has sustained me through those times of deep valleys where I feel like what in the world, like, God, why did you call me to do this? Yeah. Uh, and, and like, that makes it sound maybe trite or cliche, but it's by virtue of having to get up every week to, to do it again. It just sort of forces you to keep going. Yeah. One of the things that uh, um, Briggs points out in, in uh, the setup for that little conference that they did a number of years ago was he identified the fact that there, um, it, it, there really are a few places where uh, a person uh, can have a conversation about those kinds of things. So while I appreciate, uh, you know, put your butt in the chair, or you, you've got to have something to say on Sunday. Um, if, um, uh, if what we do is as prone to uh, episodes of feeling like, boy, I, I, I missed that, I blew that, or how come I can't get any help? Or mm. you know, at some point, um, it, it's it's a it, it's either a bit of spiritual arrogance, or it's or it's just denial. And you have to really come to terms with no, I'm a human being, and these things, you know, are poking at me constantly, and and I've got to be able to I got to unload these things. And the worst place to unload these things is Sunday morning. And, um, and I, you know, there are, that's one of the things that was drilled deep by my mentor. And then those who taught preaching and Christian ministry when I was in seminary was, listen, you find somewhere else to do that, you know, uh, because after a while, um, there are going to be a lot of innocent people who have no clue what's transpiring beneath the surface. And you will have just scalded them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, um, it's not to say that, that folks in, in a congregation that have a well-developed sense of community don't from time to time need uh, a little prophetic spice added to their sermonic experience, but a steady diet of that leaves them walking out hung dog head down, and I don't know if I really can endure that a whole lot more. It becomes there, kind of emotional abuse. There are many times where... Well, the pastors I know and spend time with, there are many times that we want to call the people we serve a brood of vipers. <laughs> um, but uh, so two things like I'm thinking about and what you just said. One, there is a really fine line between arrogance and self-assurance. And it's a really, really fine line. And it's very hard to tell which is which sometimes. And one of the best things that ever happened to me I helped out a church in Birmingham, Michigan for a summer. It's this Birmingham's this like ultra wealthy community right outside of Detroit. It's not quite gross point, but it's very wealthy. And uh, I helped this church and I preached a bunch of times and did all these things. And at the end, there was a committee that had to evaluate my, my work and everyone was filling me with praise. Oh, you're great. You're going to be a great pastor one day, all that stuff. This one guy waited till afterwards until everybody left and he pulled me aside. He said, you are the most smug, arrogant, kid I've ever met in my life. Wow. And it just destroyed me. I mean, it really destroyed me because all the thing, the kind things that people had said were gone. 
I, I couldn't tell you anything anybody said to me because I only remember that comment that night. Right. And I brought it up with the pastor who was at the church. I said, I can't believe he called me, you know, the smug, arrogant pastor. And he said, the pastor at the church said, you know, I was 23, maybe. He said, you're 23 years old. People are not used to a 23-year-old commanding a pulpit or commanding a committee meeting or a Bible study with assurance. And therefore, they see that as arrogance. And there are times where you might be arrogant, but we have to be assured that God has called us to do this thing. So that's yeah. the one part. And the second part being, I think taking out your anger on your congregation is way more likely when you pick and choose the scriptures that you want to preach on. Yes. Right. Because then you'll just pick the brood of vipers text over and over. <laughs> right. I, I committed a long time ago to preaching the lectionary. No, I don't, I'm not held to it. I'm not bound to it. You know, there are times where right. there's a different word that the congregation right. needs to hear, right. but it has been a great thing for me because on Monday morning, I read through the lectionary text and whether or not it's something I want to say, this is what God wants to say to the church right. this week. And um, that has saved me from this like pit of self-loathing or even like this attacking that can happen. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think those are great, uh, great um, uh, reminders. You know, um, I, I will say that, um, and, we, and we can go and admit to it, that, that there is a measure of ego um, required. Um, and, and, I, and I say it on a healthy sense. So, well, in no other profession do you have to offer something and then have to hear everyone's response. 15 seconds later. <laughs> right. Right. Every week. Right. And, and not just, and that's not just about the sermon. I no, mean, it's the whole thing. It's everything. the whole enchilada. So, so there is a, there is a, but, a, but I think it's a healthy, that, that's why I think kind of peeling back to say that, okay, um, you know, I recognize what call is. I recognize the activity of, of the spirit. I, 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 uh, I know that, that I'm reliant upon, um, those elements for those moments where um, I'm harder on myself than my congregation, for instance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, the, the resiliency has to come from somewhere and it can't always be um, a sort of fateful um, Kierkegaardian leap that it will all be better. It, it has to really be some sort of grounding that says, you know, I, I, people saw skills, people saw gifts, people have recognized these things. And so as much as they might be critical of me in this moment, they've also been the ones who've cheerleaded the fact that they've seen God at work. And so there's got to be some sort of kind of uh, dynamic kind of interplay of those elements. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I, 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 I still want to drive that. I think that, that, um, uh, the absence of having a, a, a group or somebody to talk to about the experience of being a minister or pastor, absent that, I, I think I think you're I think you're just risking your future. Yeah. So one, I, I mean, I love serving the United Methodist Church for a lot of reasons. There's things I don't like about it. So to be clear, it's not perfect, um, sure. but. One of the things we do well, I mean, we're a connectional system, mm-hmm. uh, which means that we regularly spend time with clergy peers, more often than not, who are geographically close to us, but not close enough that it's like somewhat competitive, which is a whole other problem. Right. But it's, it's great, especially as a young clergy, because young clergy person, because I, I really believe like I can't do it on my own. 
and that I need to be held accountable, not just by the church I serve, but by my peers in ministry. And so I really value the times we have clergy meetings or when I get together with my friends to say, Hey, help me out with this. Cause you can't just, you can't drop that on people in your church. Right. Um, so that that's, that's been a real tremendous gift. And it's something I lament for people who are outside of a connectional system. So, you know, we were talking about the, the podcast before we started this podcast, strangely warm, just to talk about lectionary. Cause I preached the lectionary and want to talk about the scriptures anyway, but it's sort of taking on its, its own life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can check the demographics and the statistics and the numbers. And we have a ton of people who listen to it in Virginia, but we also have a lot of people from the Midwest. Right. And I, I thought that was kind of strange because I don't really know that many people in the Midwest. And so I, I started paying attention to comments that were coming in and I've connected with some people. And uh, the, the comment I've received the most uh, from people who live not near here, who don't know me personally is, we feel so isolated in our ministry that on Monday morning, it feels like I get to talk with, with a friend. Yeah. And it's not perfect because it's not really talking. It's one direction, but sure. there's definitely like this hunger, this clergy hunger for relationship with other clergy, because it's, yeah. a, it's a really challenging thing to do, especially if you do it by yourself all the time. No, that's, you know, when you take, take into account that I don't know what the st- statistics are currently, um, but I remember when I was doing um, my D-Men work, uh, the research was 70% of all churches of any denomination um, were averaging uh, 100 in worship or less. Mm-hmm. Um, later in the, in the, about the mid-90s, late, uh, actually, that late 90s, it would have been that, um, you know, a church of, I don't remember what the number was, an X size, you know, represented the top 5% of churches in, in the world. That meant that, you know, 95% of most churches were, you know, smallish, maybe even medium sized churches. So when you take account of that, you know, there are churches um, that will have more staff members, paid staff than people attending worship. Mm-hmm in other churches. And, and so, you know, I'm certain that that, um, as one minister told me years ago, that just means I have more headaches than you do. Um, I think that that also requires a a different set of interrelationship that Mm -hmm. even on the staff, because at that particular juncture or that, that particular size, the level of competition's off the charts. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I think that, um, um, having uh, access to somebody, whether it is a one way on a podcast or whether mm-hmm. it is a, a group that you get to meet with. Um, those are things I found pretty refreshing to be able to, to have someone you talk to and say, okay, this, this stinks. Um, some of it is certainly my own doing. And, and some of it certainly is, is just the dynamics of people. My mentor had a line when something would go awry at the church, he would say to me, uh, Todd, um, when I'd say like, why do you think that happened? And he, he would say, well, I'll tell you what he said, um, I'll explain nuclear fission and you explain people. And, uh, case, case closed. I mean, it was like, you know, basically this is a, this is like above our pay grade to terms of explanations. And so, 
you know, when those moments come, it, it, it's not really helpful to internalize the fact that that's just the way it is. I've got to get that out. You know, if mm-hmm. I don't get that out, then it becomes the poison. It becomes, it, it becomes the thing that eats away, corrodes at, at your soul. And, and so, yeah, I, and I, I even hesitate to mention this, you know, lest we become a pity party. But when I graduated from seminary in 2013 with my MDiv, there was a study that had just come out that the majority of MDiv graduates who go on to work in ministry, more than half leave in the first five years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Leave ministry totally. Like, <laughs> not that they go to another church, like they are no longer working for the church. And, and most of them don't actually ever go to church, period, again. I remember reading that like a month before I graduated, thinking, what have I done? Uh, and that, that's a real frightening statistic to me. Yeah. And I don't think that, I don't think that anything that, that we're describing here, I'm trying to pull something up. I don't think anything we're describing here is really a, um, you know, a, a uh, uh, an appeal for pity. Uh, in, instead, I think, I think that what happens sometimes is, is um, we don't, some, some of us learn these things early and some learn them late and some fail to learn them. Hmm. And and they and they're to detriment. Uh, and I mean, uh, in in an interview that uh, Jr. did with Ed Stetzer, um, a statistic that caught his attention. Now this is going to be 2011. Uh, caught his attention. Um, uh, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry for good each month due to burnout or contention in their churches. That's 1,500 a month. I don't know that in seven years there's been any any you know uh, event that altered that number. So I if, don't. If uh, again, not making I, it higher. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't. That's why I don't, I don't think. I think really the realities are is is it, it, it sure we we can talk about the fact that um, there have been moments where I've failed myself, my own expectations. I've failed. Uh, my congregation and had to uh, be honest about that. Um, but, but what, what really uh, has to happen is, is, is um, we, we can't only always be in a, um, a, uh, a mode where we spiritualize every failure and every defeat because we're just, we're more than that. We're not less than that, but we're more than that. So, so failure is real. We're not the only ones who fail. And that's really probably the other place to go is we have folks in our congregations who want to start businesses and they fail, or they think that their marriage is going to succeed and it fails. They think their children are going to be, grow up and be just these beautiful human beings and they fail. And, 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 and so failure is such a, um, a thing we fear that when there's no authentic way to see how that's processed in a, a life of a minister, there's no example for which to follow except mm. to uh, live in shame. Yeah, there's a real strong temptation to have everything perfect for one hour a week. Yeah. You get your kids in the right outfits, you get them to shut up in the pews. And as long as everybody else in the church can see that I've got it together for one hour, then I can make it to next Sunday. Yeah, you ask any parent with young children what the worst day of the week is. It's not getting ready for school. No. It's the arguments in the car on the way to church. Yeah. That arose from this stress we place on people. Not we, but that are placed on people from some point. Yeah, Yeah, bless bless my wife's heart. I have to leave so early to get to church. 
because uh, we have two services that she she is stuck with parental responsibilities all Sunday morning and getting him here and keeping an eye on him in the pew. It's uh, yeah, yeah. I I yeah. I pray for her while yeah. <laughs> while in church regularly. Well, tell tell me tell me about a time where you failed the church. I'm curious because you 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 seem perfect. Tell me. Oh yeah, break yeah, the per- facade. I'm perfect. You know, I probably um, uh, you know the things I think that end up end up being kind of the greatest failures are the times where you look back on how you handled an event relationally and, and you could have handled it better. And, and I think that really, I mean, you know, the majority of what we do is, is relational. Um, You know, we, we'd love to think that we sock away lots of time pouring over you know, commentaries and, and, you know, language studies. And, but once you're pastoring, there's so many more things that that are going on. There's so many more moving parts that sometimes, you know, you can forget that in the midst of an objective, that there's a relationship that you didn't, you didn't nurture in a way that would be most helpful to that person. Jason, Michelle, and I lament all these people, all these pastors we meet and we, and they describe themselves as relational pastors. I'm like, yeah, what the hell does that mean? That's just being a pastor. (laughs) And I think those are the moments at which, you know, I, I can, uh, I'm, I'm safely confident in knowing that um, I'm not the best preacher that, um, you know, uh, anyone can appeal to. I, 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 I'm not, uh, I, I, I learned a long time ago that pastoring and preaching are, are both art forms and you have to really decide which one you really think you're called most into. Mm-hmm. And then I think what you do is you try to shore up the one that you don't have enough time with, uh, with, with as much, um, a little more focus than, than you have to in others. And uh, uh, people come naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I love studying, and I really love preaching, I can, I can get, I can really kind of spend time thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we, uh, handle these, uh, things that are really high, uh, high, they're people intensive. Mm-hmm. And, and so most of the times where I feel that I failed have, have not been the fact that I laid an egg in the pulpit, but was that I had, um, an opportunity that I missed to nurture a relationship in a way that I, I, I could have done better. And uh, you can't, you know, sometimes you get forgiveness and you get another opportunity. Uh, Sadly, most of the time you don't. And, um, and so um, I think that that's probably another, another thing. um, If, if we're going to talk about, you know, um, over time, what, what might be, um, I would say that probably not early enough, um, owning the fact that, that I don't know everything. Mm. Um, and I don't mean that in any other way than saying that, you know, always internally I had that, but you have this expectation that you can never say that. Yeah. And while, you know, I'm, I have children older than you are. So, um, the formation in the ministry um, way back, there are just things that I hear. I give you an illustration. I'll pick on Jason a second. You know, there, there are not too many uh, times where in Jason's preaching, there's not 
at least some personal referent. Mm-hmm. Boy, you talk about when I was taught preaching a hundred years ago, you never, rarely, ever gave. That's why they publish these illustration books. You bought illustration books put on your shelf so that when it came time for one, you weren't supposed to use a personal one. You go pick one that Billy Graham shared or, or, or D.L. Moody or, or Charles Wesley, or you pick some famous person from the past and you gave an illustration there because that safely kept you from giving too much, it being too much about you because that was the fear. I think the danger was that with that was, is you, you bought into the lot, you bought into the kind of this pedestal thing that you started with early on. There, there you are. Nobody knows that you stunk it up. Nobody knows that you struggle with it. Nobody knows that you're a sinner. Nobody knows. Now they'll talk about it. You know, they will harangue you about it. Um, but, but, um, and so I, I think that's probably, probably another thing that, that fortunately um, in about, Oh, no, not long after being here, probably four or five years, um, when I had met with a measure of success by the normal standards, um, I, I actually found that wanting. Mm. Uh, I didn't think that that was really, there, there were some other indicators that said, yeah, everybody thinks this is success, but here's some other indicators that kind of point that that may be not the case. And so, you know, in kind of that, that moment I entered a period where, you know, okay, so what really is success and, and how do we mark that? And, and uh, that's where I go back and say that probably if there, there are moments of failure, it, it probably are those times where uh, relationally um, I could have, I could have made better decisions um, how to nurture that relationship. Yeah, I think being referential, personally referential from the pulpit can be very, very powerful. The, mm-hmm. the challenge is there's a temptation to make you out to be the one to follow instead of Jesus. Yeah. You know, so I've heard that, you know, for every 10 sermons you preach in which you become a character in the sermon, nine of them have to be about how you screwed up. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to say that I'm going to say I'm, you know, teasing Jason, who you may or may not listen to this. Uh, the, I don't think most of those times he is lauding himself as the person to follow. I don't mean that in any way. I mean that when, when um, the pedagogy came down to how, how do you do this, this was a strict, um, you know, uh, bit of advice that, that uh, you, you probably need to now, every now and then, like you said, you, you need to say, yeah, I, I met, really messed that up. I, I, I really like, I'll be the butt of this sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my, my preaching prof- professor would search through the sermon and any time the word I appeared, there'd be a big red circle. Yeah. Uh, you weren't supposed to use the first person. Uh, yeah. um, I, I do a lot. And that's partly because I grew up listening to, to Jason preach to a degree. Yeah. And I'm very captivated by his, his sermons. I also think that we're a narrative people and we learn mm-hmm. from story. And, yeah. if, you know, you can tell a great story from Billy Graham, but there are fewer and fewer people who know who Billy Graham was. Exactly right. Exactly and right. what people care when they hear about what it was like to walk down the streets in Woodbridge last week and this crazy thing happened to me that actually connects with the scripture that we're going to read. Yeah. Um, you know, lived experience is made, made real, uh, in narrative. Um, yeah. but I'm, I, yeah, I'm a big narrative preacher. So. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think that, I think that, you know, as, as a different a podcast as this might've been for you and for me, I think what it does is it, it gives someone an opportunity to overhear um, maybe, maybe something different than what uh, would, would be normal. Um, and so while you spend a lot of time talking about the text or maybe involved in one of the interview podcasts, um, I'm generally talking to someone about their ideas and mm-hmm. giving a chance to overhear a couple on, uh, kind of different ends of the age spectrum and, and, uh, and tenure in ministry can, I think, hopefully be helpful to, to some pastors and lay folks who, who wonder, you know, do we ever think we fail? Uh, and what are the things that um, uh, we think about when that happens? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, how many churches have you served? Uh, I've served, in, including the church I was on staff at, I've, I've been uh, a staff, I was associate pastor with youth responsibilities, and then I've served this, my third church. Okay. So I've, you know, from the time at see from... From January of 1989 uh, was when I actually was on the ground at my first church. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm approaching however many years that's going to be uh, in 2019. Yeah, in so 30. Yeah. Um, and that would, unless something changes between now and next uh, January, um, three churches. That will be in three churches. Yeah. I, the reason I ask is, I did not anticipate how much, I mean, this sounds terrible, but I did not anticipate how much of a blessing it was to start at a new church. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it to sound like I was so ready to get rid of the last one. Cause that's not sure. what I mean. Sure. It just, it freed me up to look at, to be very introspective and say, okay, here are the mistakes I made the first time around. Right. How can I prevent those from happening? No, I'm going to still make other mistakes. Right. But it also gave me a sense for the, um, like the prescience, just the, 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 the necessity, like the ultra, um, like time is of the essence kind of thing. And I don't mean that in like an apocalyptic eschatological, no, 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 right, right, right. I do in some sense, but I mean, we're talking about people's lives right? and gosh, time moves really, really fast. Oh my goodness. Uh, and so, you know, the, one of the best things that came out of leaving and moving to a new church was saying, I, I wasted a lot of time worrying about things the first time around. Mm-hmm. And I was so worried about stepping on people's toes about certain things. I just, I watered a lot of things down and I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that has been a real, it has been a failure that has been revealed, been revealed to me, not by any particular conversation, but just by the spirit's witness. Sure. And I, I think like time is of the essence and this is really important work. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I'm glad you're doing it. I, I, I you know, it, it's uh, um, always kind of encouraging to me to to meet young guys who have such an interest because, um, you know, what we hear is nobody's interested in you know being a pastor or ministry and that sort of thing. So when you find eager young guys who who really take it seriously, it's pretty encouraging to us dinosaurs. Well, I turned 30 on Thursday and uh, I have learned quickly that probably until I'm in my mid thirties, I just need to stop telling people in the church how old I am. Cause it makes people so mad. Like even, <laughs> even just when you said like it was January of 89. So I was born in February of 88. I wasn't even a year old yet when you started serving. And 
in the last church I was in, they had this mural on one of the walls and in the corner it said 88 because that's when it had been drawn. And I made the mistake very early on saying, oh my gosh, that was finished the year I was born. I never lived that down. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, um, <clears throat> let's see, uh, we've got, there are four of us, uh, one bivocational staff and then there's, there's three uh, of us total. And, and um, our youth minister um, is 30, this year he'll be 33, and um, he's been with us 10 years this summer. And when we moved here, he and his sister uh, came to my house after school for a couple hours while waiting on his mom to come home from work. So I've known him since he was nine. Mm. And so when time gets brought up, sometimes I go, ouch, I remember, you know, mm. that. And then uh, our... Uh, associate is is um he was born in 80 so you know it it's uh he's been with us for uh 16 years this summer and then our our music minister 11 let be 11 years this summer and he's in his early 40s so it's good to have be around young people it's good to be around you know younger uh it, it keeps us learning you know it keeps us old heads learning so i appreciate you well, we're going to be around for a while, so. I, I'm, I'm gaming for it. I'm gaming for it. So, hey, I want to say thanks for uh, taking the time out of your day. I know you got lots going, and and uh, and, and most people think uh, ministers only work one day a week, but there's there's more. Uh, to one it. day? We only work one hour. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know. That's right. That's right. I, I forgot. So, I want to say thanks, Taylor. No, thank Appreciate you, Todd. And I'm, I'm grateful for the Path Theological Podcast and for the strange movement of the spirit and the internet that has brought this uh, friendship together. And I'm, I'm really grateful. Uh, thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please uh, consider sharing it. And as I mentioned uh, ahead of the interview, uh, you could run over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It'd be really helpful. It helps us kind of get found. And we're still technically kind of getting off the ground. And I um, want you to know that I'm scheduling a conversation with my friend Marty Duran. He uh, and I had a conversation just about uh, some of the most searched subjects by pastors about six months ago. It's time to uh, have a second installment, trying to still get my friend Scott Curry on the line so that we can talk about pastoring and pa- uh, uh, the pastor theologian from an Old Testament perspective. Uh, I got a few books I'm, I'm speedily trying to get through so I can get those authors online and we can have some conversations there. Appreciate your patience. I had the flu for about a week, and so that's kind of stalled things out. But we're back at it, and uh, grateful for you. So keep listening, keep sharing. Hope you have a great week. Until next time, peace. <laughs>